Our hearts are so fickle, so prone to wander. We know the Lord, we know that he is trustworthy, and yet day by day, we are tempted to look elsewhere for our hope and our confidence. Every expression of anxiety or fear, of anger, is at some level a failure to trust in the Lord, to simply take him at his word. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of Behold, My Servant, from Pastor Paul Twiss. For his text today, pastors working through Isaiah, chapter 49, verses one through six. A friend had a dad that always quipped, worry is the silent form of atheism. What did he mean by that? When you get down to the basics, what are your biggest worries and fears? That tends to show where you really put your faith. Is it in your healthcare plan so you'll be taken care of by a good doctor? Maybe your retirement account so you can have a comfortable life after working. Or maybe you're thinking of moving to a place that can offer you and your family a better lifestyle. Are these things taking care of your real worries or just putting them off? In part three of Behold, My Servant, Pastor Paul Twist challenges us as to where our real confidence lays. We'll carry on our study in the book of Isaiah and look at chapter 49. Uh, This is the second of the four servant songs. If you're unfamiliar with Isaiah's servant songs, perhaps you know 53, I would just encourage you uh, to pursue your own study of these four texts, Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. Uh, Just always a great encouragement to see Christ in the Old Testament, to read of his life prophesied and and the salvation that he wrought for us. And tonight we'll just spend our time in the second servant song, 49, specifically verses one uh, through six. So Isaiah 49, verse one and following. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord." And my reward with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So reads the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our hearts this evening. So this morning we 
spent some time thinking about the trustworthiness of the servant. We saw from Isaiah 42 that this individual is at the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. Just by way of review, Isaiah is a book that gives us a sustained theology of trust. The first half speaking about what God plans to do and the second half how. And in that second half of the book, chapters 40 through 46, the centerpiece of God's plan is the servant. And God raised up the prophet Isaiah to speak these oracles to his people because they were experiencing a crisis of trust. But as we come to this text this evening, many, many years removed from when it was first written, we understand that it is so needed for us. Isaiah's messages are so applicable for us because we are so prone to trust in other things. Our hearts are so fickle, so prone to wander. We know the Lord, we know that he is trustworthy, and yet day by day, we are tempted to look elsewhere for our hope and our confidence. As I mentioned this morning, every expression of anxiety or fear, of anger, is at some level a failure to trust in the Lord, to simply take him at his word. As you ponder your own life and think wherein you're tempted to express fear or frustration, you can perhaps see where it is that you would fail to trust the Lord. On some level, fail to take him at his word. And the book of Isaiah meets you. It addresses those fears, those angers, those anxieties. God shows himself to be trustworthy. He shows his servant to be trustworthy. A book I read recently by a man named Russ Douthat, titled Bad Religion, charted the decline of religion in America over the last hundred years or so. The subtitle of the book is what drew me in, how America became a nation of heretics. I thought that sounds interesting, and it was a good read. And a point that Ross Douthat makes early on in the book, as he charts the decline of religion in America over the last hundred years, is that Americans today, people in the West today, are not less spiritual than the previous generation. He said, we're not less spiritual than previous generations. People today are just as spiritual. It's just they find less reason to put their confidence in the church and ultimately in the gospel. Isaiah might put it like this. We all trust in something. We're all of us, every minute of every day, choosing to put our confidence, our hope in something. And God says you need to put your trust in the servant. Now, there is a secondary theme that emerges in the book of Isaiah if trust is the preeminent message, secondary to that is the notion of God's wisdom. It is a secondary theme that permeates all the way through the book. And simply, the idea is that if you are going to trust in the Lord, if you're going to take him at his word, you need to accept him on his wisdom. You need to embrace his wisdom. As you know, Isaiah says, Lord, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. We don't think like the Lord. Our plans are not the same as his. His wisdom is altogether other. It is fundamentally different to our wisdom. And so the message that Isaiah gives us from beginning to end is that if you are to trust in the servant, you have to accept the Lord's wisdom. If you're to trust in this servant, you have to accept the Lord's wisdom. You can't show up and tell God how it's going to be. 
It doesn't work to show up and say, Lord, I trust you. Now here's how things will play out. You know this. This is the consistent message, and it is the message that we start to see emerge in this second servant song. In this second servant song, we see that if we are to trust in the servant, we must accept the Lord's wisdom. We start to see something more of the individual. He tells us a little bit more about the servant himself. But at the same time, in this second servant's song, we grow in our awareness of his mission. Isaiah starts to show us something of the task to which the servant was called. The format of the song is that of a conversation. The servant himself opens. He is speaking. And then halfway through, the Lord God responds, and so we see this two-way conversation. And the conversation actually splits into three ideas, all about the servant and his mission. The headings that I've given to them are first the servant's sending. The Lord God sends him, and we learn about the nature of his sending. Second, the servant's silence. As the servant looks at his ministry and says, I have labored in vain, we read of his silence, and then finally his success, the ultimate outcome of his mission, the glory afforded to God by virtue of the servant's work. It's funny, when I first began preaching, I just determined in my heart to not be a three-point preacher with alliterated points. <laughs> just a decision that I made. And then as you keep preaching, it's funny how many texts just fall into three points and the main idea of each one begins with the same letter. <laughs> so lots of S's for you tonight. The servant's sending, silence, and success. And in each case, we see that in order to trust in this servant, we have to accept the Lord's wisdom. Isaiah is writing on behalf of the servant when he says, Listen to me, O islands. Now that word islands is exactly the same word with which we finished the first servant song translated there as coastlands. It's the same word. And so think about the level of continuity that's being etched out for us here. At the end of the first servant song, we're told the coastlands wait for his law. At the beginning of the second servant song, he tells us to listen. Listen to me, you coastlands. Pay attention, says the servant. You peoples from afar. And then he speaks about his sending. The Lord called me from the womb. Speaking again about his earthly ministry, his first coming, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. Now, this is very important because, again, what we see here is that the Lord is claiming this servant as his own. The concept of naming in the ancient Near East was one wherein you asserted your authority over the thing named. So think about Adam in the garden. God instructed Adam to name the animals. In so doing, God is telling Adam, you preside over these creatures. You are head over them. Or perhaps more practically, more contemporary, just think about the fact that parents name their child. The child doesn't name himself or herself. The nurse doesn't do it, nor the doctor, nor anyone else. The parents do. That's a very evident expression of their authority, their ownership of this child. Or think even about the gospel narratives. Think about the times when Jesus interacts with someone who is demon-possessed. Have you ever wondered what's going on when that person 
calls out to Jesus, the demon cries out and says, I know who you are. You are Jesus, the Son of God. You are Jesus, the Son of the Most High. The demon is trying to name Jesus, trying to assert his authority over Christ. And so Jesus responds each time and silences the demon. He's saying, you don't get to assert your authority over me. You don't get to pronounce my name. So at the beginning of the second servant song is important to note, God named the servant. In the same way that we began this morning in Isaiah 42 verse 1, and we read that this servant comes from the Lord, so also here this servant belongs to God. This morning that was a point at which we find him to be trustworthy. Here we go on to read something of the mission to which God has called him. He says in verse 2, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He's also made me like a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Now, this is an interesting metaphor that we read here in verse 2. Perhaps our temptation would be to think of this man as one of violence. God named me and he rendered me a man of violence. Except we know that's not the case. We know that's not the case, not only from the testimony that we have in the gospel of Jesus' ministry, but from Isaiah 42, this morning we read there, this one will not raise his voice in the street. He won't break the bruised reed or extinguish the, the faintly burning wick. He is not a man of violence. And so the metaphor of him being made like a sharp sword or a select arrow actually points more likely to his efficacy. This man is highly effective. There is a particular accent here placed upon his teaching ministry. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Isaiah is telling us here that all that this servant speaks is true. Nothing that he speaks is false. All his words will indeed come to pass. His ministry is highly effective. He will not fail. And then we read... Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel. So just think about the logic. We begin with the declaration that God named me. He has claimed me as his own. I am the Lord's servant. He has fashioned me so as to make me highly effective. And then we hear the name. Then the name is announced to us. He said to me, you are my servant Israel. At which point you might be thinking, well, I thought he was called Jesus. And you're right. And there is a, a theological truth that comes out by virtue of the servant being named Israel here. It pertains to a logic that weaves its way all through this second half of the book of Isaiah. And it is simply this. The nation of Israel had been labeled as God's servant. If you read through the book of Isaiah, you'll see many times that God says, the nation of Israel is my servant. They were commissioned to a task, and yet they failed. They failed utterly. They did not succeed in honoring the Lord and doing what he had called them to do. And so what God does is he sends his servant as Israel. He sends the servant as the true Israelite. He sends this one to show them what success looks like. 
The logic that permeates through this second half of Isaiah is that the servant will do what Israel failed to do. And in so doing, he will then lead them unto success. As you get to the latter portions of Isaiah, you see the nation of Israel finally doing what they were supposed to do. How? Because at last, they are looking at the servant. They look to the servant Israel, and now the nation of Israel succeed in their task. The true Israelite comes to lead them in victory. And all of this is to the end of bringing God glory. End of verse 3, in whom I will show my glory. Now, think with me as if you were an Israelite, an original recipient of this text. It would not be hard to rejoice at this announcement. As an original Israelite reading that the, the true Israel is coming to lead you in success, follow him and you will do what God has called you to do. God will be honored through you. He's highly effective. His mouth is like a sharp sword. He is like a, an arrow. You can readily get on board with that. If you were an Israelite, you might be saying, where do I sign up? I'm in, except for one small detail. One detail that I passed over, and that is that this servant is hidden. This servant is concealed. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has hidden me in his quiver, referring to the fact that when Jesus came for 30 years of his life, he had no public ministry. And then when he did stand up and start teaching about the kingdom of God, it was but three years before his life was over. That was not what the Israelites were expecting from their Savior. Have you ever wondered why God sent his son to live on earth for but 33 years? Most of his life, we knew nothing of him. And then when he finally did step up to speak, he was rejected. And within three years, he was dead on the cross. Now, all of a sudden, as an ancient Israelite, you're slower to sign up to this mission statement. Now, all of a sudden, as an ancient Israelite, you're wondering, God, why aren't you answering our prayers? Remember, the original situation is that the Israelites are looking at their northern horizon and they're seeing the Assyrians. They're fearful that they will be next. And in due course, it won't be the Assyrians, but the Babylonians that rise up to swallow them, to take them into exile. So they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, help us, deliver us. What do they want from that prayer? They want undoubtedly God to raise up an army, to raise up an army that will crush the Assyrians, that would crush the Babylonians. Or Lord, even forget the army, would you just put an end to them? And God says, consider my servant. He is humble, he is meek, and for the most part of his life, you won't even see him. Now, we might ask the question, why is it that God doesn't answer their prayer in the way that they would have wanted? Or more specifically, why doesn't God answer your prayer in the way that you would want? Why is it that God so rarely answers our prayer at the time of our asking exactly in accordance with our asking? Why is it that we cry out to the Lord and we don't hear an instant response in exactly the way that we had asked it, simply because he wants us to trust him. If God answered your prayer at exactly the time of asking, exactly the way that you determined, you would never learn to trust him. You would learn to 
make use of him, like a vending machine. I have a problem, so I cry out to the Lord. That's what I do when I have a problem, and he always answers exactly the way that I want. You would never learn to trust the Lord. And so we see here, perhaps for the first time in this servant's song, the fact that in order to embrace this servant, in order to truly trust him, you have to accept God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom on display and not ours. And to be perfectly clear, it is not wrong to cry out to the Lord for help. It is by no means wrong to cry out that he would help us in our distress. I would say most days, in some way, I cry out to the Lord. Lord, please help this family. Lord, please help this individual relieve her suffering. Lord, please help this person over here. Meet them in their circumstances. It's by no means wrong for you to cry out to the Lord, but understand that at the same time, you must also say, Lord, and I trust you. Help me, deliver me, save me, and I choose to trust you. In order to trust in the servant, we have to accept the Lord's wisdom. Well, we go on to think about the servant's silence. We read in verse 4, but I said, this is the servant still speaking, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. There's a few things that it's important to note about the servant's songs, and particularly here, as you read through the four servant's songs, there is always an emphasis on Jesus's humanity. When you read through the four servant songs, there is an emphasis on Jesus's humanity. Isaiah is not trying to give us in the servant songs a fully developed theology of Christ. It is true, and Isaiah would agree, that Jesus came fully man and fully God. But his emphasis in the servant songs is on the humanity of Christ. And so there are times when you read statements that we might struggle to reconcile if we're trying to form from these servant songs a fully developed picture of the Lord Jesus. The second thing to note is here in particular, we would tend to read into this a level of despondency, discouragement on the part of the servant. We must not think that the servant was lacking in trust. That at this point, the servant was beginning to get doubt God. That's not what's going on at all. In fact, we read this as a simple, objective statement of fact. The servant is really reporting what he sees. From a very human perspective, he is saying, I have labored, but I have nothing to show for it. I have striven on your behalf, but I've got no fruit to show for it. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. In part three, Pastor Paul indicted mankind, even Christ followers, as, quote, fickle and prone to wander. And that's because we're in the habit of failing to trust God, treating Him as unreliable. As you look back on your life, what are you glad you put your trust in? Are you glad you relied on your money, your cleverness, your connections? When you face God on a future day, how's that going to look? What is God going to see in you? You can do a lot of things without trusting God. You can make money, 
have a nice house, a good business, and a great car. But there's one thing you can't do. You can't please him. As the book of Hebrews reminds us, quote, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ and how you can live a life pleasing to him, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts, and there you'll find an archive of Pastor Paul's sermons on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow, it's part four, the conclusion in our series, Behold My Servant. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.